The history of Star Wars is the history of cinema. For everything you like about Star Wars, there is at least one film that inspired it. And we're going to review them all on Episode Zero. Welcome back to Episode Zero, the Star Wars podcast where we don't really talk about Star Wars. My name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold, and people call me, I don't know, what's, how do you calculate your Star Wars name? I, I don't know, dude. It's you're like, you're Jork Blar Blar. J- jork is a good one. Jork Fleendro. Done. Fland, Flandro. Flan, fling, fling, flung. Flandro s- Speedbox. <laughs> there you go. My name is Flandro Speedbox. I like it. <laughs> I like it. And I'm Bibbs. Just Bibbs. Bib. Nothing fancy. Isn't there, there is a character named Bibbs, isn't there? Yeah, there's Bib Fortuna. There you go. Slightly different. Slightly different. Bib, is his middle initial O? It should be. Bib, Bib O Fortuna? Uh, it should be, but mm-hmm. I don't think it is. That's too bad. Anyway, yes, this is a podcast in which we talk not so much about Star Wars, but the prehistory of Star Wars, the movies that inspired Star Wars, because Star Wars is in many respects a pastiche of that which came before. Mm. And that's one of the things that makes Star Wars so special. And it's one of the things that makes Star Wars so cool is that you can look back at film history through the lens of Star Wars and discover all kinds of amazing films, some of them established classics, some of them relatively obscure. I don't know why I bring up that second part, because... This time, we're talking about a movie that is almost universally considered one of the best ever made. It's a little something we like to call Casablanca. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Rano, and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. Casablanca is an American romantic film (laughs) from 1942. Um... I always love, like, if you look up Casablanca on, like, Wikipedia, they always have to introduce it in, like, the most general terms, just in case you don't know what Casablanca is. There's I, bound to be someone. Mm, yeah. Just like, what, what is Casablanca? I've heard of it. It's a movie? Casablanca is one of those movies that, you know, while history tends to erode the celebrity of many films, mm. Casablanca lingers on. Because not only is Casablanca still great, mm. not only is Casablanca a film that won the Academy Award for Best Picture, but Casablanca is still influential. There are uh, oh, yeah. turns of phrase, there are storytelling tropes that Casablanca started or at least popularized that we still use constantly to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I mean, like, think about all of the quotes that we get from Casablanca. Round up the usual suspects. Here's looking at you, kid. This looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship. We'll always have Paris. Yeah. Uh, In fact, I I remember uh, seeing Casablanca in my 20s. I had seen it before, but I remember revisiting it after not having seen it for many years in my 20s. And the last speech that Rick's, Rick gives to Ilsa out on the tarmac, mm-hmm. like, not a single line of that hasn't been, like, parodied or milked or repeated ad infinitum and in other sources. Because it works, mm-hmm. damn it. Like, yeah, the, the whole movie the, works, even the parts the that don't a, technically work. The, the, the problems of a honky guy and a wormy sidekick don't mean a hell of beans in this crazy world. Um, yeah, it still works, it still plays, it's still wonderful, uh, and what I love about Casablanca is it was never meant to be what it is. Yeah, it was that never is, meant to be a timeless classic. Yeah. It was kind of a dramatic potboiler. It was a dramatic potboiler. If you look at a lot of the films, like, chronologically, directly in Casablanca's vicinity, you'll find a lot like it. It was actually tapping into a lot of just really popular trends at the time. Mm-hmm. Shooting in, a, in an exotic location. Or rather uh, making it look like or, you did, yeah, even though you're on a studio backlog. Rather but. setting it in a, an exotic location. Uh, the kind of big stars that were around at the time, that were under contract for whatever studio they were working mm-hmm. for. Uh, you know, it, Humphrey Bogart, it wasn't like he was some sort of big get, like a rarefied star that they were trying really hard because he was perfect for the role of Rick. This was his he was first just, rom- he was the first romantic lead. He'd yeah. never done a romantic lead before. Mm. He'd done like a lot of like um heavies and bruisers and mm. criminals, but he'd never been like uh, the sexy romance guy. Michael Curtis, the director, is an excellent director. He's done a you know, at this point had done a lot of really important good movies, mm-hmm. uh, Captain's Courageous and, and uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Yeah, Robin Hood. Like uh let's see what else he did. He had the Sea Wolf, Angels mm. with Dirty Faces, Mildred Pierce. Later on in his career, he'd do Yankee Doodle Dandy, mm-hmm. White Christmas, Life with Father, We're No yeah. Angels, Captain Blood. Yeah, He's made a lot of classic movies. A, a lot of classic movies, but you'll notice something. None of these are like the work of some sort of really serious, complex auteur. He was a populist by all all mm-hmm. uh, measures. Yeah. And that he did this big romantic pot boiler using what was essentially action movie filmmaking techniques mm-hmm. is the kind of, the thing that kind of left its hooks in the public. They were actually able to see this romantic plot about these former lovers who reunite in a, a, a Nazi or a, a one particular city where people are, are stopping before they flee the Nazis and took something that could have been potentially very dry. I'm thinking of something like, you know, something like David Lean might have directed mm-hmm. and turn it into something that is just rip snorting fun. Well, the closest I'm just trying to think of like, what's the closest relatively modern analog we have to mm. Casablanca, where it's a movie by a filmmaker who doesn't make Oscar movies. Doesn't mm. mean Michael Curtis has been nominated for a bunch of Oscars, but he doesn't make like art house yeah, movies. He was, makes mainstream was, entertainment. This wasn't to be a prestige beloved. picture. Yeah. And, yeah, the closest I could come up with was Titanic. Because here's James okay. Cameron, this oh, yeah, populist filmmaker who happened to make this, on paper, a very schmaltzy romance. But that story plays. It was a huge hit. It works. It's quotable. It's beloved. The music is wonderful. A lot of things about it work. But even Titanic isn't quite right because Titanic was the most expensive movie ever made at the time. Mm-hmm. This was just a studio picture. I think Michael Curtiz directed another film that year. Yeah, they were just, <laughs> just churn- cranked it. They were just churning the, these things out. And in fact, this is finally- actually this is actually a key example of 
the studio system at work where mm. we like to think yeah. of filmmaking as the ideal version of filmmaking is some artist with a vision who rallies everyone around the story they really want to tell and a lot of people don't believe in them but they have to fight for their vision and, and yeah. many of the rest of the movies ever made come from that and then there's Casablanca where someone at the studio saw a play called Everybody Comes to Rick's and said oh that's good let's buy that and then they rewrote it a bunch of times and tried a couple of different directors and that didn't work and so they finally gave it to Michael Curtis and every casting role was almost someone else and they started production when they were only half finished with the screenplay <laughs> like this this is the kind of crap you hear about like you get worried about yeah when it's reported on movies today it's like oh they just started production but they're not done with the final draft it of would, the script or they they're doing going back and doing reshoots they do that on every movie it would be like if Gore Verbinski's Lone Ranger was like the best movie you've ever seen like it's just <laughs> it's just the studio thing and it had all yeah, the studio yeah. problems and it had uh, there were even going to be reshoots, but they decided uh, that they couldn't, but found that they couldn't do it. Mm. So they were just stuck with whatever they had. And it turns out whatever they had was brilliant. So it's just this big studio product that happened to be brilliant. Mm. Th- and it this, is brilliant. This is the sort of thing that studios should be. This should be like the kind of birthright of big studio pictures. Mm-hmm. They should know how to do this by now. Whenever, like, but whenever, like, like, a hot shot yeah. filmmaker is like, I have a better idea, so they just be like, Casablanca, that was us. Boom, do your yeah, job. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we can we can credit the studio yeah. for Casablanca as much as anybody. Uh, and I mean, and, granted, it's a work of brilliant writers, brilliant director, brilliant mm, actors, but mm, the studio is the one that brought this thing yeah. together. And uh, and keep in mind. Even handing things over to an auteur who's fighting really hard for their vision can often produce crap. Uh, sure. If you've read any of the articles or even the book that M. Night Shyamalan wrote about his production on Lady in the Water, mm. about how this was like, he, he had this wonderful idea where he's telling stories to his kids and how he can turn storytelling into a character. And he pitched this idea to all of the studios and they said, no, that's a terrible idea. Don't make that movie. Yeah. And M. Night Shyamalan said, no, I'm going to make this picture. And he pushed really, really hard every step of the way. Everybody told me it was a bad idea. You know what? It's not a good movie. Yeah, there's no guarantee. Just because, thought, yeah. just because people tell you your movie is bad doesn't mean it's good. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's actually bad. Sometimes studio notes are a good thing. Here's the thing. I, I saw Lady in the Water in theaters twice, by the way. Why? Uh, because the first time, I thought it was a comedy. I thought it was... Uh. I thought was taking there's the funny bits there's funny bits but i thought the whole concept was taking the piss ah and and it wasn't until i saw it the second time that i realized oh wait no oh, he meant God, this this, is this was supposed to be a big deal yeah. yeah i thought it was like this weird kind of wry satire on what he had already set up i felt the same way about pain and gain the michael bay film oh i think like, that one's supposed to be funny though it, i mean it's, it's supposed like, to be funny i thought he was like satirizing himself but then i see him in interviews like oh no you were just doing it straight my theory with uh uh michael bay is that he secretly wants to be the coen brothers absolutely he keeps casting coen brothers actors yeah and francis mcdormand and, and john, john malkovich, malkovich and shit. And... like you look at what he did with transformers dark of the moon everything where shia labeouf gets a job that's from a Coen Brothers movie. Mm. That's totally a Coen Brothers movie. And then robots come up and Michael Bay's like, fine, I'll stop my Coen Brothers movie and put the robots, robots punching each other again. For, for 50 straight minutes. But uh, let's let's get back to Casablanca. Let's get the, basi- <laughs> let's get the basics on Casablanca. Right. Because, again, we are allowing that there are people who might be as mm. familiar with the movie. Maybe they're younger, haven't got around to it yet. Maybe it's just one of those movies that everyone told you you had to watch and you never got around to it. Here's what Casablanca is about it's set just before 
uh, America got into World War II, I think shortly before uh, mm-hmm. the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, the rest of the world is in absolute turmoil. Germany is starting to take over uh, Europe. They've already uh, occupied, uh, I think, France at this point. And refugees are pouring out of Europe. However, there is no ideal route through Europe Mm. in order to get to America. And a lot of people end up at a way station. And one of the way stations is a place in Africa called Casablanca. And Mm. Casablanca is a... It's in Morocco. It's in Morocco. It is a desert city. And the entire town, when we are introduced to it in the movie Casablanca, is filled with basically three types of people. Mm. There are refugees who are trying to flee to America but can't afford their exit visas, which is paperwork that allows you to leave the country. Uh, There are people who are exploiting those refugees by stealing from them, by uh, forcing them to do unwholesome or terrible things in order to get their Isaac visas. It is a hotbed of crime, or to use a Star Wars term, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. Uh, And then there are the corrupt police force. Mm. And that's basically it. And the only other person who's there who doesn't fit that category, is an American named Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart runs a cafe, or rather a a restaurant, a bar, with Mm. illegal gambling in the back, called Rick's Cafe American. Uh, And everybody comes to Rick's. It's the most popular spot in town. And the reason why it's the most popular spot in town, besides the fact that the music is great, you got Dooley Wilson on uh, on piano, belting Mm. out classic songs, uh, besides the fact that it's very large and looks like the service is really excellent, is the fact that Rick has remained completely neutral Mm. amidst all of this turmoil. So that the whole bar is filled with refugees who are cowering in corners, making secret plans, planning to, like, you know do resistance movements or flee the country sitting right next to the corrupt Mm. French government that is exploiting everybody who are sitting right next to Nazis who are in town trying to stir up shit and try to get all the rabble rousers under their thumbs so that they continue to take over the world. And then there's Rick who's sitting in the corner, minding his own fucking business, trying not to get involved in anything. And Mm. over the course of Casablanca, Rick goes from being someone who is emotionally walled off and is only looking out for number one to being exposed to a series of situations that force him Mm. to take a side and make personal sacrifices in order to do the right thing. It's about uh, trying to find the heart in like beneath the shell of this cynic. And Humphrey Bogart is so good at playing a cynic. Uh, Just he has that sort of stony deadpan uh, delivery of all of his Mm -hmm. lines, especially in the the early parts of the movie. Somebody asks, uh, what country are you from? He says, I'm a drunkard. Uh, Like he he is. To which which Claude Rains says, which means you're a citizen of the world. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God, I love Claude Rains in this movie so much. The cast is amazing. Uh, You got Humphrey Bogart. You got Ingrid Bergman. You got Claude Rains. Mm -hmm. You got Conrad Veidt. You got Paul Henry. Mm -hmm. You got Sidney Greenstreet. You got. And of um, course, Peter Lorre. And of course, Peter Lorre. This is a cavalcade of wonderful actors and character actors. Mm And one of the things I love about this movie, and I think it's one of the things that makes this movie more than just like a Studio B picture mm. at the time. Well, it was an A picture. Well, it was an A picture, but it makes one of the things that makes it feel like an A picture. It makes it feel really distinct. Mm. Every, and I think this is something that George Lucas actually followed in Star Wars, whether he was consciously doing Casablanca or not. I think mm. this is an ethos he had. Every person on screen is a character with their own story. 
Yeah. If we yeah. linger on a person in this movie mm. for more than a second, they are doing something that tells you what you need to know mm. about them. Whether it's there's a bit where uh, the great S.K. Sakal, a uh, wonderful character actor, he was in uh, Christmas in Connecticut, um, he's uh, talking to like a couple of German or Hungarian people who are fleeing to America. And the whole oh, thing yeah. is the whole, th- and it's just them. It's like, oh, we're making it to America. He's like, oh, that's great. We're trying to practice our English. We're only speaking our, uh, we're only speaking English, so we can be totally ready for it. Mm. Uh, what is watch? Oh, it's uh, uh, twelve time. <laughs> and as case all, it's just like you'll fit in great. <laughs> Speak English better than most of them over there. Like it's just this little bit. We never see those characters again. Yeah. But the entire place is populated with fascinating people from all walks of life and they're all given life in this movie and one of the reasons why is because this movie was made before america was like really full bore on world war ii especially in europe mm. it took a long time to get americans invested in the idea of going to war against germany a lot of people thought that hitler could be pacified mm. a lot of people thought he wasn't that evil Actually, for a while. In fact, there was there's like, even that documentary uh, yeah. about a Nazi rally in Madison Madison Square Garden. It's Madison Square Garden. Yeah, uh, it's a horrifying documentary. It's and it's, it's ju- all- just footage from a Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden, hosted by Americans, by the way. It's, oh yeah, and Germans came over and were like selling the ethos, but. Right. It wasn't like some sort of invasion. This was it's, just something that they were trying to get started in America. Yeah, it was not. These were uh, not ideas that were mm. unilaterally rejected in America. Mm. So, the idea of Casablanca being about an American who discovers the moral need to get mm. invested in something when really he doesn't have to. He can look out for number one. At the end of this movie, Humphrey Bogart could get the girl, get a lot of money. And get the fuck out of everything, and he chooses not to mm. because it's the right thing to do. And that's something mm. that was a message that was an important sell in America at the time. And a lot of the people making this movie were uh, Jewish and or European immigrants who were mm. fleeing World War II at the time. Michael Curtiz, Michael, Co- Michael Curtiz, yeah. Michael Curtiz is a Jewish uh, uh, immigrant filmmaker. He, uh, I think, he lost family in the, in Auschwitz. Mm. He's, he's Hungarian. Yeah. Um, and a lot of other uh, people in the cast were fleeing Germany as well. Many of them were, uh, well, not many of them, but some of them were Germans who fled to America to mm. escape the Nazis and wound up playing a lot of Nazis Connor because Pine, they needed yeah. people who had the accent, which is kind of ironic. Mm. Um, but yeah, there was this attitude amongst everybody that this is a, a moment to take, this is a moment where we can make a movie about what's going on right now. And a lot of them took it really seriously. Yeah. Even, yeah. If, even if they had very tiny roles. Um, so the I, I, yeah, I appreciate too that uh, it, it also shows that there is something. Uh, if you watch a lot of romances, uh, usually the romance is kind of bottled off from the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, a lot of romantic films tend to be about how falling in love puts you kind of on your own planet with the other person. Yeah, and you are like alone. Yeah, you're your alone problems. together, and you, the 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 problems of the world just sort of disappear because your love is so intense. Think about every and, romantic comedy you've ever seen, where it literally doesn't matter what anyone does for a living. You never see them yeah, at work. They stop going to their job after a yeah. while. Um, they yeah, they just don't film them at work yeah, any longer. It's, the love story is the mm-hmm. only thing that matters in the plot. Right. So, I, I appreciate that Rick's romantic history is a big, big part of him also getting involved and opening himself back up to being part of the world again. Yeah. And that's, and, but that also ties directly into getting involved in the war. What, what do, what are we really doing here? Yeah. What do we care about? And Rick, as it turns out, cares about stuff. There's also a really great speech, um, 
that uh, uh, the Claude Rains character gives about how he, or is it Claude Rains who reveals the sort of the lost cause that he used to fight for? A couple people do. Claude yeah, Rains they, does, they, and they Conrad Veidt talks about the, it. Both. Conrad Veidt does as well. Yeah, okay, there's but they a, talk about how before he opened up Rick's Cafe, oh. he actually. Um, he ran guns uh, for uh, a civil war, and he also fought uh, against the fascists in Spain. Mm. And in both, and uh, Rick's blithe sort of kiss off of that is, oh, I just did it for the money. At which point they say you could have made more money by fighting for the winning side. Mm. Yeah, there's a line that Rick says in this movie that I, I remember. I was in film school, and I had mm. a teacher. Uh, Talk about this line of dialogue, and he, I remember this like the, the hearing a popping sound because my mind had just been blown. <laughs> There's a line that Rick says a couple of times in this movie. He says, "I stick my neck out for nobody," mm-hmm. and what he's saying is that I'm I'm theoretically what he's saying is I am staying out of it. I am only looking out for myself. What a teacher at film school, a teacher named D. Caruso, uh, uh, pointed out to me was. When he says he sticks his neck out for nobody, he means he sticks his neck out for nobodies. Mm. The people he will go out of his way to stick up for in this movie are the people with nothing. Mm. He will not stick his neck out for a corrupt cop. He will not stick his neck out for a uh, revolutionary uh, leader with a lot of uh, resources at his disposal. The one time he actively goes out of his way for no reason, it pays him nothing. Not even peace of mind, just nothing. Mm. There are two refugees. They're young, I think they're Hungarian refugees. Mm. And we see them a couple of times throughout the movie, and they're constantly trying to get their exit visas, and they can't. And and they seem like a a complete distraction, but they they end up playing this really key role. Really important role, where uh, all of a sudden, they're at Rick's Cafe American, and the young woman goes up to him, Rick, and asks him about, uh, I think it's Captain Renault, played by Claude Rains. He's the Mm. corrupt French uh, cop. Uh, who is very happily corrupt and will mm. totally admit it. And he tells the Nazis, there's just like, hey, I go wherever the wind blows. And I'm like, well, what if uh, what if the, the, the allies start winning the war? Well, are they going to do that? <laughs> well, no. Then you got nothing to worry about. <laughs> like he's, a, he's an asshole. Um, and a, a bit at the end. I got that's gun pointed right at your heart. That is my least vulnerable spot. Wonderful line. Mm. But he's got a thing on the side. This movie is actually full of amoral monsters. Mm. Some of whom see the light by the end, but they still do terrible things. And Reno is one of them where we find out and they don't really spell it out too clearly. Mm. But it's clear that he has offered this young woman who's married to this young man. They're trying to escape to America. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He he offers like, if you sleep with me, Mm. I will give you your exit visas. And she goes up to Rick and says, without spelling it out, because the production code wouldn't let that be a plot point. Mm. Can I trust him? Like, if I do this, and I would be doing this for my husband, and I would never tell him, would he actually go through with it, or would he just exploit me? And it turns out that her husband at that time is at the roulette tables trying to win enough money to just pay for the exit visas. Mm. And at which point Rick goes back into the into the little casino... And he tells and, him, and of course everything's rigged back there. Oh, of yeah. course it's rigged, and of course he and he goes back in there and he says, "Put all your money on twenty two. And he just sort mm. of nods at the roulette, uh, mm. the croupier, croupier, mm. and uh, and we just boom twenty two. I mean, Lyric says, "Leave it there." Mm. Boom twenty two. Get, no, get up, yeah. Get, get your chips. Get up. Pay cash out. Never come in here again. Mm. That's it. And everyone who works for Rick is like, "Oh my." Fucking God. <laughs> That's never happened. Who are oh, those people? Who are yeah. those people? And oh my God, Rick, get, get Rick a nice cup of coffee. Just 
Seriously, what is bless him? Holy crap! Now, uh, now the MacGuffin in this film is a pair of exit visas that are hidden in. Well, I won't say where. Um, <laughs> But uh, they come into Rick's possession via Peter Lorre. Mm. Uh, and Peter Lorre is Peter Lorre. He's one uh, of the great character actors yeah. of all time. Wonderful, like, thin, sniveling little voice. You know Peter Lorre because they imitated him on the Looney Tunes constantly. They imitate He's him just, constantly to this day. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you despise me, don't you? Um <laughs> I, I love Peter Lorre. I love everything he's, he's done. Uh, he was in a really great episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Mm. Oh, where, uh, the classic with where, the lighter. With the lighter and, and yeah. young Steve McQueen. Oh, so that like, was Steve McQueen. He's, he's young Steve McQueen, wow. and he says, come back to my hotel room. And uh, I'll bet you, if you, can, if you can get your Zippo lighter to light ten times in a row... Uh, I'll give you then, my car. Then, yeah, I'll give you my car. It's a really nice one. Come down and look at yeah. it. Of course, it's TV, so they actually can't afford the car. They just talk about <laughs> it. Uh, but if you miss once, then I'll take something that you can go without, but it's something that, you know, I want. The little finger on your left hand. <laughs> so it's, it's really wonderful. Quentin Tarantino uh, ripped that off in mm, the... in uh, Four the Rooms. Four Rooms. Yeah. Fun little anthology. I actually like Quentin Tarantino's segment, and he's pretty open about it. I think he even talks about it being an mm. Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode. I think it's in the... Dialogue. I think actually, it's in the dialogue. Yeah. So like he's just admitting, yeah, I'm doing it. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> whatever it's uh, fun. Short story. I'll just redo it. Great ending we'll do to that one too. Yeah. I like the way Tarantino ends that one. Yeah. But um, but yeah Peter Lorre, uh, just this wonderful. He, because he's Peter Lorre, you know he's untrustworthy the instant you see him, mm-hmm. just because of the way he moves and he kind of like leans down and puts himself in these like really kind of rat-like like p- positions. It's funny. Conrad, positions. Conrad Veidt plays the lead Nazi in this, mm-hmm. and Conrad Veidt was starred in the uh, classic silent horror movie The mm-hmm. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Peter Lorre is the one who walked out of a, of a silent like German expression. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Conrad, did you ever see The Man Who Laughs? I'm actually never seen all of it. Oh, okay, that's, see that one. Yeah, Sorry, uh, Man Who um, Laughs is the silent movie that The Joker was based on. Yeah, it was one of, like... It was made right at the like sound was already part of the film landscape at that point. Mm, it was so right was at like, the tail end of the sound. So area. It, it was kind of like the height of silent filmmaking. It's this big, f- fantastical fable-like epic. It's really really wonderful. Check out the Man Who Laughs uh, with Conrad Veidt. Um, but yeah, I agree. Peter Lorre is the. I don't want to say he's the only larger than life character because everybody's a little bit big in this movie. Yeah. But uh, he, yeah, he's he's a cartoon. Yeah, but he's only in like one scene. So mm. he comes into Rick's Cafe American and says, mm. uh, "I have come into possession of letters of transit. Mm. This is different from an exit visa. Letters of transit are signed." By I believe he actually says Charles de Gaulle, which doesn't make any sense because Charles de Gaulle wouldn't have any authority under the Nazis. <laughs> but they, but yeah, oh, we'll talk about this plot yeah. point in a second. But their letters of transit, and what it, what it is, is they, these cannot be questioned. Mm. No matter who you are, like you could be Franklin Delano Roosevelt trying to like leave Germany through a Nazi-run airport, but if you have these papers, you can go. Mm. Like no matter how much they'd want to arrest it's, it's, you. It, it, again, it's a MacGuffin. Oh. Such papers wouldn't exist. Right, but the it's idea not like is, this get out of jail free paper. Yeah. Just wave in front of a Nazi and you get to walk past. Which, uh, uh, by the way, this is a plot point that J.J. Abrams used in Rise of Skywalker when they go to the planet with Carrie Russell 
on it, and oh, she yeah, has she those has letters of transit. Yeah, yeah, this little and magical coin. It's this huge plot point, and it says, "Listen, with this you can leave, even if even though you're resistance, mm. and I fought really, really hard for this, but you need it for the resistance, and this means I can never leave the planet." So when the planet blows up, oh no, she's dead because there was literally no way she could ever leave the planet. Then she shows up at the end with no explanation. Yeah, it's so you didn't need this. Such a badly written movie. Such a badly <laughs> written movie, but that's clearly an influence for that scene. Mm. Um. And uh, but yeah, so the idea is anyone can use these at any time. Hmm. They are the most valuable thing in Casablanca, and Peter Lorre has them. He gives them to Rick specifically because he knows Rick doesn't like him, hmm. and he knows that Rick is not gonna like pretend to be his friend. He knows that Rick is just gonna like try to stay out of it and just hang on to the papers for a minute. But then Peter Lorre gets arrested immediately, yeah. and then immediately dies in prison. And Claude Rains has a great line where he's explaining to somebody, "Yes, yes, we haven't decided if he committed suicide or got shot trying to escape. <laughs> <laughs> haven't decided yet. We'll figure it out. I'll write in the paperwork right now." And because Peter Lorre is such a snivel- sniveling little bastard, you just don't care. Yeah. You don't. Well, you, you, I, I care because you, you I like can, Peter Laurie, but like he, well, you can he clearly you he's can, got what was coming to yeah, him. Yeah, you I'm can so, laugh at his face. The is implication is that he killed people to get yeah, those. Ugarte. Uh, the implication is that he killed somebody to get mm. those. So Rick has got the most valuable thing in Casablanca. And then the plot really kicks in because who walks into his cafe but the leader of a resistance movement against the Nazis, played by the great Paul Heinrich, mm. Victor Laszlo. And Victor Laszlo's wife, Ilsa, played by Ingrid Bergman, who was not a huge star in America yet. She was actually a mm. European actor who had come to America and hadn't really mm. hit it big yet. This is her big, huge breakout role in America. Yeah, she's a Swedish actress. And she has a history with Rick because they fell in love in Paris right before the Germans occupied it. Mm-hmm. And just when they were about to leave, they were going to leave the next day, meet at the train station, we're going to flee, we're going to be in love, and it's going to be great and why do you keep bringing up things like, oh, if we can't be together, please forgive me. Why do you keep bringing that up? That's stupid. Anyway, <laughs> we'll just meet at the train station tomorrow. And uh, yeah, she doesn't show up at the train station. Years have gone by. Rick, has, his heart has turned into a big callus. Mm. And now she's back. And he's pissed. Because she broke his fucking heart. And now she's here with this resistance guy. And once they find out that Rick has those papers... They want them. And he's like, how fucking dare you? You mm. want something from me now? It's... After you destroyed me? Mm. And that's the big story where mm. Victor Laszlo needs to get out of Casablanca because A, the Nazis are looking for any excuse to kill him. There's any excuse. Any excuse to get rid of this guy. And his time is running out. He cannot stay here. And he's he's valuable to the resistance movement. He's, the implication is he's who we need to stop Hitler. Yeah. And Rick hates his ever-loving guts because he had his heart broke. Will Rick do the right thing, or will Rick succumb to his uglier nature? Well, and and here's the interesting thing. Uh, Victor Laszlo is maybe the only character in the movie who is not a liar. Uh, Every other character is uh, a cynic or a liar, or they've... uh, they've Or corrupt. Been been a turncut, or or they're they're corrupt in some way. He's the only one who is 100% who he says he is, and actually wants to do good because he knows it's the right thing. And he's the only moral character. And here's the thing. He loves Ilsa. He genuinely loves her. He genuinely cares about her. There's a situation that arises where, listen, you're the most notorious man in Casablanca. I cannot give you an exit visa. But I can't get one for her. Mm. And Victor Laszlo says, okay, get one for her. She's like, I'm not leaving you. 
please? Mm-mm. And she's like, no, <laughs> never. I'm not going to abandon you when you need me. Mm. You need me. And he does. Mm. But he's willing to protect her. He is genuinely good. It's a love triangle between two people who are clearly meant to be together and another guy who is perfect. Yeah, yeah, and not the asshole kind of perfect where it's like, yeah, he's fuck a, that guy. You no, know, he's actually like really noble and yeah. pure and good. Uh, of course, the scene that brings tears to everybody uh, everybody's eyes is when the bunch of German soldiers come into Rick's cafe and they start singing German folk tunes, and the in-house band is like, oh god, we have to do this. Nobody wants to hear these Nazi folk tunes. And uh, and, and of it's course, Paul Henry, it's like yeah, Victor Laszlo. Victor Laszlo stands up, is like, I'm not going to stand for this shit. Yeah. Every moment of rebellion, every act of rebellion against the fascist state is meaningful, Mm. even right here, right now. And he starts getting people to sing the Marseillaise. Mm. And it's only when Rick nods and says that's okay that people really start getting up and mm. and and it's and it shows something. It shows there how Victor Laszlo is the person who motivates people, but he's not the only person who gets things done. He can't do it all by himself. And someone like Rick, yeah, yeah. who has connections, who can be insidious when he ha- when he needs to be, uh, someone who has that kind of maybe not charisma, mm. but that level of authority. Over yeah. people, where people will listen to him and people will believe him when he talks. We need Rick. And to tie this into Star Wars, and we're going to do it in a couple of different ways, as far as I'm concerned, Rick is the first Han Solo. Where the whole yeah, point of Han Solo he's is... He's the one who's in the bar when they go in. And, yeah, uh, he's, he's hanging out in the back, just like Rick. He has... he's he, And we much like Rick, Han Solo is a smuggler. Rick got to start doing that. Mm-hmm. And... As we saw, and even in the the Han Solo prequel, um, he did some noble things when he was young as well. He wasn't always a jaded dickhead, but by the time we met him in Episode Four, A New Hope, he wants out of it. He doesn't believe in anything. He doesn't trust anything. His heart has been broken apparently because he just doesn't have one. Mm-hmm. And by the end of Star Wars, when when Han Solo takes the money and leaves, it's entirely in character. Yeah, he flat out says, "Listen, I was here for the money. I did the right thing, and that made me feel good. But I owe money to Sydney mm. Greenstreet. I mean, job of the hut. And I gotta just take out. Mm. I gotta look out for me. And so when he comes back to save the day, that's not just oh good, Luke's gonna live. It's oh my god, mm. someone who wasn't invested in doing the right thing now is. And that's the exact same journey that Rick goes on, albeit in a different way." And in that scenario, I would say uh, Luke Skywalker is the Ilsa role, and and Princess Leia is actually the uh, the Victor Laszlo role. Interesting, and because because she's she's the political leader, she's the one, she's the pure hearted one who actually wants to get shit done. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you, I think you got a point. Yeah, and and Luke Skywalker is sort of the one who's trying to uh, is sort of like the go between between these two extremes. Yeah, which, which it's, is, it's not, is, it's not is, the cleanest metaphor outside of Han Solo, but, 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 what you're saying. but Luke is definitely not the Victor Laszlo character, is my point. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. I mean, yeah. obviously there, there's a different mm. kind of relationship that they have, but yeah. I mean, Princess Leia is way more Victor Laszlo than she is uh, True. Ilsa. Well, she's she's yeah. she's stalwart. She's uh, right about everything. She's yeah, mm. yeah. If Rick fell in love with Victor Laszlo, that's that's Han and Leia right there. I can see yeah. that. It's a good story, actually. <laughs> but make a queer Casablanca. I don't mind. I'm uh, down. They've talked about remaking Casablanca a few times. They actually did a couple of Casablanca TV series, one in the 50s, one yeah. in the 80s that we've actually reviewed on Cancel Too Soon, if you want to mm. dig back into uh, 
the critically acclaimed network archives. It's, it's still there. It's free. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an interesting uh, uh, show. It starred Hector Elizondo and Ray Liotta and David Soul and... Um, but wasn't Ray, the worst. Ray, Ray Liotta had nothing to do. He was just no. a bartender. He never yeah. had a, pl- a subplot. He was just in it. And, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, it was uh, the Claude Rains character was, uh, was Hector Hector Elizondo. Elizondo. It was actually good casting. Mm. Um, they also toyed a few times with doing a sequel. Um, once officially with like Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains, although it never materialized. And then mm. years later, there was a novel and a couple of times people have toyed with mm. it. Like, oh, what if Rick and Elsa had an illegitimate son oh, who God. was going to like go finding out what happened to his dad in World War II? And I'm like, that's a terrible idea for a movie. No, that was a really terrible. That's but an awful idea. A, a, a good idea for a movie, though, because the movie ends with, of course, I, I can say the last line of dialogue. You know what it is. It's this could be the start of a beautiful friendship. And it's between, between the beginning of a beautiful, or beginning of a, a beautiful friendship, which was actually between, a. They didn't yeah, have that yeah. on the day. They came up with it after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> because that's, uh, hum- studio notes. <laughs> that's Humphrey Bogart and Claude Rains are sort of wandering off into the mist together talking about how they can, they're can they going to go into business together running this sort of corrupt but helpful service. Well, sort of. Um, they're they're, they're going to join the resistance. They're yeah. just going to do it their own way. And they mm-hmm. both had an opportunity. They both had an opportunity by the end of the movie to look out exclusively for themselves and mm. thrive in a corrupt and fascistic government, and they have both decided not to. Um, and they both have a lot yeah. of redemption. To they, Claude Rains in particular, he's done a lot of horrible things. And, like, and genuinely terrible things. He's ha- basically a war criminal. Ha- happily so, but yeah, yeah. He's, we like him because he's just so excited about what he's doing. Because he's honest about it. Yeah. Like, he's he doesn't pretend he's not. There's a great line where um, uh, the Nazis, after the whole thing with the Marseillaise and how the Nazis are shamed and everyone mm. uh, starts, you know, rising up against the Nazis through song, the power of mm. art to make it take a stand against fascism in one scene. Uh, the Nazis tell uh, uh, Captain Rhino, you have to shut the place down right now. And he's like, I don't have a reason to. Find one, <laughs> and so Renell says. Um, okay. So, just, so he says, "Okay, he everyone." Blows sh- the whistle and says, "Everybody, get out!" Uh, there's We're gambling. Sh- I can't believe this. What you, you? I was eating in an establishment where gambling was going on, and a guy walks up in the middle of that line. You're winning, sir. Thank you. Paul <laughs> <laughs> Rains is so amazing in his movie. I mean, he's amazing generally. Like he, he was a few years before he was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He's oh, he'd amazing been a, too. He'd been a beloved uh, character all, actor yeah. for many years at this point. Yeah. yeah. Um. I think he was, he was nominated for an Academy Award for this one. Amazingly, uh, Ingrid Bergman wasn't. Confusingly. It's bizarre. It's, yeah, it's, it's really bizarre. And I feel like uh, Ilsa's role is in discussions of Casablanca is really downplayed. Uh, she's the one who makes Rick into a human. Mm-hmm. She's the one who actually is the one with the most moral conflict. We talk about Rick's mm. redemption story and how it resembles Han Stolo's mm. redemption story. Because he is the protagonist. Yeah. He's, the, he's the perspective of the story. But she's actually... She's the one who needs to facilitate everything. She's doing all the action. No, she's actually a really important character and it's it's easy to write her off as a love interest, but not mm. if you really pay attention because everything that she's going through, every single thing that she has ever done is enormously conflicted. And And she's had to do bad things and she deliberately hurt Rick. Yeah. Because she needed to do the good, the right thing. Yeah. Because the whole, the whole story, and of course we're going to talk about the plot of Casablanca because it's super fucking famous. But Mm. at this point we're going to get into like the real, anything that feels like a twist. We're going to talk about it here. So if you want to pause, watch Casablanca, Mm. it's on HBO max right now. So very easily accessible. Um, but yeah, it turns out that the reason she broke his heart was she was already married to Victor Laszlo and she thought he was dead. Mm. He had been 
captured by the Nazis. He'd been in a concentration camp, and she tried to find him for months, and then she finally was told, yeah, he died. He died trying to escape. That was incorrect information. Mm. But she thought he was dead, and she was trying to move on with her life, and she had found probably the love of her life. When she talks about Victor Laszlo, she talks about him in these sort of fawning terms on much she looked up to him, and that's love, but it's a different kind of love. Mm-hmm. And she had a different kind of love affair with with uh, with Rick. Mm-hmm. But when she found out just before they were going to leave France together that Victor Laszlo was alive, she's like, okay, on top of being conflicted, I'm still married. Yeah, and, and she has to do the right thing. She because, has to do the right because, thing. Because also because a, the production code yeah. wouldn't let her leave her husband. But I, well, exactly. It but, works in this situation because it's a good I, moral conflict. I, I don't feel like she's enslaved by the norms of marriage in this one. I feel like she's actually you know in a, in a position where she uh, is forced to make the, the moral choice. Yeah. And so in the movie, when she, Rick refuses to mm. give Victor Laszlo the letters of transit, just because he's being an asshole, basically, mm. Ilsa comes to him and says... Look, what do you need? Yeah, I'll do anything. I'll mm. I'll I'll be with you. Mm. I'll do it. Just yeah. let let him live. The world needs him, and I love him. So do whatever you got to do. We can sleep together if you want. They they never really go into detail about whether or not they do. There's like a kind of an awkward cut, which implies I, that they mm. might have, but they don't come out and say it. What do you think? No. Do you think they slept together? I don't think they did. No, it, it doesn't. Maybe I'm I'm sugarcoating it, but it doesn't didn't look to me like they did. I think it could re- I think it could have it both I th- ways. I think, I think if you they can tried, read it both ways. I think if they tried to make it today, then they would have. Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least they come close, and yeah. then like, there'd be a phone call or mm-hmm. something. Um, like the, there there actually is like a, a brief makeout scene, and then yeah, yeah. then they're interrupted. And uh, Rick decides to take her up on that offer, where okay, you're gonna end up with me, and I'll get Victor Laszlo out of the country. But then he goes to Renault and says. You want to arrest Victor Laszlo? Because he's getting in the way of me and Elsa, man. And because of the movie... And here's the thing with Casablanca. Until the ending, mm-hmm. Casablanca is a film noir. Yeah. yeah Everyone in it, except for... except sh- for Shadows are a big part of this movie. Shadows actually, are a big yeah. part of this movie. Uh, almost every character in the movie is morally conflicted. And the only character who isn't Paul Henry is kind of a dupe. If you look at it from a film noir perspective. Where his mm-hmm. wife's in love with another man, she's willing to leave him. Yeah, she loves him enough to get him out of the country, but she doesn't want to be with him anymore. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Rick has this moral epiphany is what makes it not a noir, even though it's clearly adjacent. Rick decides to do everything that will make it look like he's going to leave. He sells his bar. He uh, rats Re- uh, uh, Victor Laszlo out to Renault. And then... After uh, everyone comes together and it looks like Renault's just going to arrest Victor Laszlo, Rick pulls a gun on Renault, takes everyone out to an airfield, and Ilsa still thinks they're going to run off together. Mm-hmm. And Rick is just like, okay, now get on a plane with Victor Laszlo. She's like, uh, what? Yeah, no, this you would regret this. This is a terrible thing. This is, we. I'd be happy. You would eventually be miserable. You would eventually regret your decision. You need to go. Mm. And do the right thing. And Rick is also making a sacrifice because he's giving up the love of his life. There's a part of me, on the other hand, that looks at this scene and thinks, oh, what a dick move. Because now Rick in, in Ilsa's mind will be the coolest guy ever. <laughs> oh, you think he, he leveraged himself into her heart I so think, he can I th- look like the hero? I think, I think. I mean, granted, he's not going to end up with her. But I think in the back of his head oh, is just it's just like, you're going to fucking love me forever. 
<laughs> I will always reside uh, in a little back of your brain. There's always going to be a little room locked away just for the coolest guy you ever fucking met. Okay, look, R- Rick is calculating. He's not that kind of calculating. <laughs> It's just me. When I've seen this movie so many times. I just if, every once in a while I watch it from a different perspective. If Cagney had played Rick. Okay, yeah. Maybe you'd have that. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll grant you. That. And Cagney also would have been a good Rick. I Actually, mean, would have. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Everybody says, "Oh, perfect casting." No, you can recast literally any role with somebody, and it would have been better. But uh, well, maybe not better. At least a lateral move, or or different, or yeah. just as iconic. Yeah. I think Cagney and Casablanca yeah. would have worked just as every, well. Every single uh, time they like recast an iconic character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone's like, no! But think about how many times they've recast the Joker. Yeah. Like, Cesar Romero, iconic. Jack Nicholson, iconic. Mark Hamill, iconic. Heath Ledger, iconic. Joaquin Phoenix, arguably iconic. It's too soon to say. He won an Academy, he won an Academy Award. Uh-huh. So, it's like, oh no, they're going to recast this role we really like. It'll probably be fine. Although and he- if it's not, they'll recast it again, and then it will be fine. I've noticed people don't talk about Jack Nicholson anymore. Like in, in discussions of the Joker, I think he'll, I think which he'll happened, get discovered, which, which fr- happened frustratingly frequently. But yeah, um, I think he'll, I think he'll, I think time will uh, he'll, we'll come back around. Yeah. I think it's only a matter of time. I watched that. I watched the hell out of that Batman movie when I was a kid. Yeah, I me to too. Go, it's it's one been, of the best. It's been like over a decade since I've seen. Still it. Still plays great. It again, yeah. I watched it a couple years ago. It still plays like a dream. Okay. Yeah. Um. So uh, yeah. It, so it so it leads into backstabbing I mean, and clever think, well, uh, clever plot twists. Well, and I, I want to say. Wanna Everything can uh, expand a little bit though about how you know Rick is trying to position himself as the cool guy in Elsa's heart. <laughs> I think that Rick, was mostly joking. But. Rick, I know, but uh, Rick, Rick understands, and I think the audience kind of understands as well mm. that it's not just a code thing where the wife has to stay with the husband; she can't just leave her husband and go live in sin with this guy. Yeah. I think it's important to acknowledge that Ilsa and Victor Laszlo are perfect together. Mm-hmm. They actually believe in the same things and they actually are willing to stick it out for each other in a way that I think Rick and Ilsa aren't. Uh, Rick and Ilsa had this sort of fling in a way that brought Rick's defenses down, mm-hmm. but I think she's way too mature for a guy like Rick. I think if you look at Rick and Ilsa's relationship, what we see of it, we see mm. them like driving It's, it's a montage. It's, it's, a, it's a an montage. extended montage, but it's a montage. It's a montage. Uh, by yeah. the way, the actual montage is like the opening of this movie where we see all around the world and mm. the Germans occupying everything. Uh, directed and edited, I think both, by Don Siegel. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, Don Siegel, who who would go on to direct Dirty Harry, Hmm. who would go on to direct uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original one. Uh, One of the great genre filmmakers of the middle of the century. Yeah, he got to start working as like an editor and doing montage sequences for films like this. Hmm. Awesome. Um, But uh, no, when you look at the way that their relationship is framed in the film, Ilsa and, and Laszlo... Mm. are in the shit together and they're depending on each other and they're supporting each other. Ilsa and Rick are on vacation. Ilsa and yeah. Rick have their like, you know, their own little world and it's free from the Nazis, they're going to escape the Nazis together. They were going to run from trouble. Ilsa and, I, and Victor ran into trouble to try to make the world a better place. Mm. There's a story, I don't know how true it is, it might be apocryphal that uh, Ingrid Bergman asked, I think Michael Curtiz or one of the writers, um, who am I more in love with? Rick okay. or 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 Victor? And the answer was both. You're oh, equally. Okay. <laughs> it's got to be equal. It's yeah, got to be. It, and that's something that production code be damned. Like if she, if it seemed like she preferred one over the other, the ending might not work. Mm. And either one, the ending might not work. Yeah. If she loves them both equally, if they both represent different parts of her, 
then we have a great ending. Well, there's a a small contingent of people who have always whined that Rick and Ilsa should have ended up together. I've seen Casablanca numerous times. Not once have I ever thought, no, they should run off together. That's the better ending to this movie. It's not the better ending to this movie. It feels like the mega happy ending, but only Mm. if also miraculously World War II ends early. Yeah, yeah. Because the reason why Rick is letting go of Ilsa isn't just because she's in love with Victor Laszlo, but because Victor Laszlo is actually going to help end World War II. And so is she. Yeah. She's 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 there for the cause. And indeed, Rick, if Rick ran off with Ilsa, he probably couldn't do what he's got to do, which Mm. is basically smuggle guns and shit for the resistance. There's actually everyone in this movie gives up who who ends up happily Hmm. gives up something to do the right thing. Rick gives up the love of his life. Ilsa gives up one of the loves of his life. Her, at the her end, life. <laughs> at the uh, sorry, her love. Uh, Victor Laszlo. At the end, Rick does explain y- y- we we had a thing. Like he understands mm. that he was not the only woman in his wife's life, and there's something sad mm. about that. But he also soldiers on, and he knows she's a complicated woman, and they've all had to do things mm. that are weird. And then, and even Renault gives up luxury. Like he rather mm. like when he. Uh, uh, what happens is uh, Humphrey Bogart ends up shooting Conrad Veidt, uh, the lead Nazi. And all Claude Rains has to do is arrest him. Is arrest him. Yeah. And then he ends up he ends up still running things in Casablanca. He's and got he's, all the power. He's, he's, he's got an in with the Nazis now because he caught yeah, this yeah. Nazi murderer. It's yeah. in his personal best interest, if all he cares about is wealth and power and success, it's in his best interest to just arrest Rick and Rick would let him do it. Mm. Rick was willing to make that sacrifice. This is what's going to happen. And he looks at a bottle of champagne from Vichy, France, and that's like symbol of luxury, and he throws it in the trash. Mm-hmm. And he's like, ah, God damn it, I can't do it. <laughs> but when the police show up, he's got that great line, which is the the the, the lead Nazi has been shot. Round, Round up, up the, the usual, usual suspects. suspects. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, Just we, the, we, we don't we, talk about that line enough. Uh, the idea that there are usual suspects is such a fantastically <laughs> corrupt concept. <laughs> Just round up the eight guys we always blame. I love. I'd love to, to see the story of one of those eight guys. Yeah. I, okay. Look, I I robbed a bank once. It's been twenty years. <laughs> Would you please stop putting me in these police lineups? No, but you're good at it. I know. I know. Okay. Do you want me the with a limp this time? Limp. Yeah. Okay. I'll do the limp. Uh, okay. So I'm trying to make sure. I want to make sure I covered yeah, uh, all of the, the main uh, uh, connections well, to Star one, Wars. But. Uh, well, uh, here's another connection to Star Wars. Mm. There is one piece of, uh, I'll call it human music in Star Wars. Um, of the Jizz Whalers. Don't want to say their name <laughs> because that sounds like a porn site. But uh, yeah. Okay. In case you didn't know, the name of the band in the mm-hmm. Mos Eisley Cantina. Like this is this isn't canon because they don't say it in the film, so I don't. I'm not going to count it. I don't care if it was on a toy package. It somewhere. is the official, according to Lucas Film, right. the official name of the band is the Jizz Whalers. Because because J I Z Z hyphen W A I L E R. They saw no problem with this. No, and 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 even at the sign, even at the time, Pe- people, that word had a different connotation. Yeah, that's a that's uh, a thing. But. Uh, 
that piece of music, uh, it, it sounds like an actual piece of music. Like yeah. you'd buy it on a record somewhere out in the mm-hmm. real world. Mm-hmm. All the other music in Star Wars is either John Williams' score or it's this weird alien stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But this is actually music played yeah. by a band like a, in the movie. There's... Um, I know that like the the Ewoks have a big song that a lot of people mm-hmm. like, but that sounds like that's supposed to sound alien. Yeah, and they have uh, a they have another one in uh, uh, John Hutt's bar. Yeah, where yeah. they added like a big musical number in the special mm-hmm. editions, but mm-hmm. there was still music. But before. but again, it sounds like alien music Kinda. and it's sung by creatures. This is uh, just the clarinet. Yeah, like that that when I saw, finally saw Star Wars, I somehow had that piece of music in my head, like it yeah. had drifted into my consciousness at some point. Yeah. Um, so it actually, when we go into Rick's bar in Star Wars, they play a really iconic piece of music that sounds kind of old. As Time Goes By is one of the best songs ever written for a movie. Yeah. And a lot of people at the time didn't even realize it was written for a movie. It was actually written to sound like an old standard. Well, actually, to was... the point where people actually were convinced it was an old standard. And indeed, there's stories of people telling about the time they first heard it before they heard it in that movie. Strictly speaking, it actually was written, I think, for the play. But my, my but, point is, uh, it wasn't like on old records. People at the are gonna time. Yeah. people are gonna correct us on. But like the other thing, I actually found out is they never released a soundtrack for Casablanca until the nineties. No, no, I I knew that. Yeah, yeah I didn't. That was right. new to me. I'm like Casablanca. It's got a bunch of great songs in it. Dooley Wilson sings a ton of great songs in that movie. Um, so. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a thing. I, I think you can draw a pretty clear parallel between uh, Renault and uh, Lando Calrissian, this guy mm. who's ostensibly in charge of this place that's staying out of the war mm. altogether, and then at the beginning of his story makes a deal with the fascists in order to save his own skin and the skin of the people that he works with, but then on a much quicker scale than Renault does, <laughs> realizes that was a terrible thing to do and ends up sacrificing everything in order to do the right thing. Also, that seems like such a minor part of Star Wars. Like, we've, we've been going through the whole movie before that thing is even introduced. You know, it's at interesting. The end of Empire I'll, Strikes Back. There's a lot of different parts of Star Wars that I think people forget about or don't really ascribe a lot of significance to, but then they'll take other similar ones and make a big deal out of it. Like, in, um, uh, in The Last Jedi... There's a whole okay. sequence where Rose and Finn go to a place called Canto Bite. Yeah, uh, and the, the the casino planet. It's a casino planet, or mm-hmm. at the very least, it's a giant casino on it. And we see that there are a lot of people within the world of Star Wars that are financially uh, uh, profiting from war, mm. and they and they live in a place where they get to be enormously wealthy, but there is also slavery mm. on that planet. And this whole sequence, some people argue, is unnecessary uh but i think that's like saying that uh a whole chunk of raiders of the lost ark is unnecessary because he was they were digging in the wrong place and Mm. indiana jones didn't have to be there the issue isn't so much the plot it's why we go yeah and so i think the reason why we go to canto bite is to fill out this part of the universe that we haven't really talked about the idea that well, capitalism is actually an important factor in why war exists, even in this fantasy universe, because it's so well thought out. Mm-hmm. And I think in the original Star Wars, a lot of those movies, every time we go to a planet that isn't actively occupied by the Empire, they're still pr- portrayed like Casablanca, where even if you're staying out of it, that's a political thing. Yeah, yeah. And if ultimately, what it boils down to is you can try to stay out of it as long as you want, but eventually... You will have to make a choice. You will have to take a stand. You will have to decide what side you are on. Mm. 
Lando Calrissian makes that decision. Mm. Uh, uh, DJ, played by Benicio Del Toro, he makes the opposite decision. Okay. I was kind of disappointed we never got back to him. I thought that was an interesting character, but whatever. Hmm. I, uh, I know a lot of people were frustrated by it, and the, that's a way overstuffed movie. It's two movies. They could have split The Last Jedi into two movies. You're that's probably my, right. That's my only complaint. I actually really like that one, but... Yeah. Um, it, it's dense. I, yeah. I kind of like that it is given a lot of threads that don't lead anywhere. Yeah. Uh, for a... a a, a series that's actually really well known for like tying everything together to with a degree of neatness that it feels contrived. Mm. It's nice to have something that actually kind of splays a little bit. Okay. We have this quest, this star Wars like quest, and we're going to get this guy and do this thing. And as it turns out, that's not going to help you. This, the usual star mm-hmm. Wars shit fails now. Yeah. Cause we've, we're you, how many films into that point? We're like 12 films in at that point. Depending on how like, you count, yeah. yeah. It was at episode eight, but 12, you know, 12 yeah. film number Got 12. Got Ewoks and, movies, yeah. the holiday special, a couple of prequels, the animated, the animated movie. Film. Yeah. yeah, so we've done so much Star Wars over so much time, it's like, are are we really just going to do the same thing again? Yeah. And as, as Rise of Skywalker pointed out, yes! <laughs> but Last Jedi, I think Last Jedi is interesting because everything people complain about from The Last Jedi mm. is literally following the formula from Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, We're like, right. oh no, all the characters didn't spend all their time together. They didn't in Empire Strikes Back. They immediately left and each yeah, other. And spent the whole time. And popular like, what, opinion is the Empire Strikes Back is like unassailable. It's like the yeah. best one in the series. People, I've had. I was too young when Empire Strikes Back came out oh. to be aware of the mm. uh, the whatever the reaction was to it. Uh, but it's my understanding from a lot of people who were around that it wasn't immediately accepted as. Uh, a classic. There was some backlash to it. There were people who weren't happy that Darth Vader was Luke's father, and mm. maybe questioned if Darth Vader was lying. Like people wanted mm. Kylo Ren to be lying about Ray's parents, and then they decided to backtrack on that. When they backtrack on Ray's parents, mm. it would be like if at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, when Luke is talking to Obi Wan, and he's just like, "Oh," is, or he's talking to Yoda, "Is Vader my father?" And Yoda's just like, "Nah, he was fucking with you." The whole end of the movie was pointless. <laughs> Like, you couldn't do that. That's terrible drama. You can't say no, but. Which is what they did in Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, you gotta but, uh, say yes and. This is a, this, we're passing the torch. We're passing the story off to new people. You can't just deny everything that happened before. You have to run with it. I, and, I, I think, and I think Ryan Johnson ran with it. He just didn't go in the direction everyone wanted him to. Mm-hmm. Which is what Empire Strikes Back did. It went in weird different directions. Mm-hmm. And Luke spent the entire time training here's, with a Muppet. Like, here's, these here's, are weird here's, things. <laughs> Here's a way you could have done both. Yeah. Like, he's your father, but he's also not your father. What if he's made of pieces of his father? That would have been kind of weird. Like, like this weird Frankensteinian thing where it's like a piece of your father's brain is in there and they he only kind of remembers that. you like as a RoboCop thing. They could have leaned into that. that I would have been happy that with that. would have been kind of wicked. I like that. That would have been kind of cool. Mm. I, even just thinking now about like people complain like, oh, I can't believe that... Like Luke would abandon everyone and like go live in seclusion and not get involved. That's what Yoda did. No one was pissed. Yoda was fighting Sidious. He was he was on the ropes. Then Yoda just fell over once and said, "Fuck it, I'm going into seclusion for thirty years." Hmm. What? Why are we fine with that? But man, well, look, I'm oh, whatever. A lot of Star Wars fans I've heard say, "Oh, we need a, a good film that sort of bridges the gap between." Uh, Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars. Uh-huh. It's like what happens in that time, but 
the problem was at the end end of Revenge of the Sith, all the players are in place yeah. already. They're already where they are. Yeah, the, like, they're they're Yoda already goes set to everything Dagobah, up. Obi Wan uh, goes out in the to, desert. Yeah. Uh, Luke is dropped off as a baby where he ends up growing up. You know, and and Princess Leia is off with Jimmy Smith. Yeah. So that's it. <laughs> That's the story. We, we don't need to bridge everything. It's already been bridged. Yeah. That's why so, Rogue One was such a useless, were, futile fucking people were, exercise. People keep talking about how they want to do like an Obi-Wan series. Like, what happened to Obi-Wan before episode we, four? We, we saw that. We literally know everything from when he was a young Jedi up to his death. We've seen it all. I can kind of see. Here's what I can kind of see. Here's the one Obi-Wan story I can kind of see. It's a one-off. Okay. Because if he did it more than once, it would ruin everything. Mm. He's living in Tatooine. Tatooine is a wretched have scum and villainy, or at least most Eisley is, but that's the closest city. One time, he got involved in some shit. Mm. He witnessed a murder. You know, some kid, like, parents died and ran off and wandered into Obi-Wan's hut and he had to protect him from a couple of bad guys. Like, one tiny Western story. Mm. Completely isolated. It's just one cheap thing. Like one B movie. That's what you can do. If he did it more than once, he's not fucking hiding, is he? But yeah. in 30 years, one time, or 20, or whatever mm. the fuck it was, one time something interesting happened in 20 years, fine. Or, I don't want well, a whole also, fucking series of him taking over the universe. Well, I've also seen, uh, or what, you know, what is it about maybe it, it could be sort of like a, a much mellower, like a much mm. more introspective, meditative, spiritual show about mm. him sort of being out in the desert. We got that movie too. With Ewan McGregor as well, he's Jesus Christ in that movie. <laughs> Last days in the desert. Last days in the desert. That movie is great. <laughs> I wish people talked about that mm. movie more. Ewan McGregor played Jesus Christ and the devil. Mm. In a movie called Last Days in the Desert, which is about the last days of Jesus Christ's uh, fasting in the desert, mm. just before he decided to go back into civilization and accept his mantle as the savior of mankind. Mm. And uh, it's all about how, in the last couple of days, he got involved in this one um, isolated family out in the desert who had simple problems that seemed completely insurmountable. Mm. And the devil basically just says, if you can't fix this family's problems, it's just three people in a desert. If you can't fix their problems, how are you going to save the fucking world? Hmm. And Jesus is just like, all right, I'll do it. And it's a really good movie. Hmm. And I wish people talked about it more. It barely but got I, released. I feel, for anybody who's been longing for that missing Obi-Wan Kenobi story, though, that's kind of maybe yeah. you got it. Maybe that's, it's maybe it's yeah. last days in the desert. I can see that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway, Casablanca. Back to Casablanca. Let's wrap it up in a neat little bow. Mm. Um, Casablanca, every time I watch it, it's one of those movies that gets a little something different out of it. There have been a couple of times I watched Casablanca and I didn't like it that much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's a couple of times where, like, I, I, when Casablanca first came out, there were people who really liked it. But there's a lot of other people that just said, eh, it's a pretty good potboiler. And sometimes and then, every once in a while I get this sort of just like, yeah, it's pretty good. But then I come back around to it. I'm like, no, nah, man, it's pretty fucking perfect. It's, yeah, actually. it's, it's, like, it's kind of brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I, I did just just out of curiosity, uh, looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh-huh. And it has a 99% approval rating Who's on the Rotten asshole? Tomatoes. Uh, somebody <laughs> calling themselves the Low IQ Canadian. Oh, uh, that sounds I, like they're trolling. And I, I went to the, the site where the review ostensibly was, and it was it had long ago been like bought out by some Thai media site, so mm-hmm. it was all in Thai. I couldn't read it. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, and and I couldn't find anything, like any references to Casablanca, any photos or anything. So no, my, who, my might be to, gone now. Who's to say know. if that review still exists somewhere? Yeah. But, uh, and I, by the way, you're allowed to not like Casablanca. No, if you have a legit, if you have a legit, I, I joke uh, about who's the asshole who yeah. didn't like Casablanca. If you've seen Casablanca and you didn't care for it, 
that's okay. Mm. But there's a reason why people have glommed onto it. There's a reason why it has, there's many reasons. Has the legs it has, yeah, yeah, why it still plays to so many people today, why it's still considered a classic, and why it still influences people from Star Wars and way beyond. It still basically works. And honestly, this whole idea that um, people who are trying to stay out of politics and just go about their business... Mm. And how they're not realizing that it's a political decision and how eventually they will need to make a choice or they will need to decide where they stand. That's something we wrestle with constantly. Yeah. Like today, there are political issues that people are trying to get actively involved in right now. A lot of people have decided that recently everything was the last straw and they're getting more political than they've ever been in their lives. You're all Rick. You're, this is something that people go through. Where they tr try to live their lives and they realize that their lives are more than theirs. They are actually part of a world, a society, a people that actually need to stand for something. That's why Casablanca, for all of its specificity of place and character, still feels universal. Because there's a moral component into it that is kind of universal. Yeah. The mm -hmm. idea of self-preservation is natural. But there comes a time mm -hmm. when you need to be willing to take risks and make sacrifices mm -hmm. to do the right thing. And, and although Casablanca has become kind of a nostalgic classic, very much the same way Star Wars uh, has, and in fact, Star Wars was constructed that way, uh, it was actually made at a time without the benefit of hindsight. No, it was, it, very, it was, it was very contemporary. It was incredibly contemporary, and I think that's another thing that actually lends to its universality. Mm -hmm. The fact that uh, it's not trying to put history's perspective on it it's trying to put a, a literally straightforward moral perspective i mean it's on practically it. propaganda it's it's, well, absolutely. it's, it's most, excellent propaganda most but... films made in europe and america at, during world war ii served as propaganda yeah in was, so, to some degree or another at least all the ones that and, have anything to do with world war ii and, and, and i don't and i don't want to you know propaganda yes it serves a function it can also be very exhilarating mm -hmm. uh especially if you agree with it if you yeah, if you agree with it, it's exhilarating. So you yeah. watch a lot of these old American propaganda films, and you're like, yeah. Well, look, luckily we have hindsight and yeah. perspective and context for these yeah. things now. So, some of them are irresponsible mm. and immature, and others mm. are exquisitely crafted and actually intelligent. And you know, the idea. What's interesting about Casablanca as mm. a piece of American propaganda? It's not about America. No, it has it's, nothing to it's, do. It has, the protagonist is American, but he's the only one. It's expressly non-nation. The only nation mm. it's against is the Nazi nation, not even Germany specifically. Mm. I read an interesting. Uh, I wish I could remember who wrote it. There, I read an interesting perspective on this movie that it was uh, a metaphor for FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, okay. who uh, tried to stay out of it for a long time and finally uh, felt morally compelled to do something, mm. but had to get into the war in slightly less obvious ways because he didn't have a lot of support from the American people. Mm. Uh, and the headshot to that argument that Rick is Franklin Delano Roosevelt is the name of the movie is Casablanca. <laughs> White House. <laughs> and I was like, I was reading yeah. that, I'm like, oh shit, actually, yeah, good point, actually. I never really thought about yeah. that, yeah. I never thought about that before, but it's right there, they're not mm. hiding it. It's the name of the fucking movie. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, you can you could say it was kind of about America, but not really. Not 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 really. Yeah, um, it's a fun read though. I like that one. Mm. 
Uh, I, 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 one of the things I admire about Casablanca is its nationlessness. Yeah. To, to read it as a big American propaganda metaphor makes it less interesting. True, but it's in there. It's one of the many things that's in there. Oh, I, yeah, think, I, I think it's one of the things that's exciting about Casablanca is that it's a confluence of so many things. It's a love story and it's a war story and it's a crime story. It's a story about morals. It's a story about amorality. Sorry about various different nations and what mm-hmm. people were doing and sacrificing and uh, the various forms of corruption that existed throughout all different people. <sighs> Damn good movie. Anyway, that is episode zero <laughs> for the week. Thank you for letting us be the millionth people to talk about Casablanca. But it's a great movie. And every once in a while, we need to remind ourselves why the greats are great. Mm-hmm. Or ask or, ourselves if they really are that great. Yeah, re, re, revisit them to reconsider, not to reinforce. Yeah, that, every once in a while yeah. they, they are reinforced. Mm. But sometimes you watch a classic and you're just like, yeah, that's an age great, has it? That's sticking with me. Uh, something that's souring for me is a, a lot of those uh, Nolan Batman movies. Oh, really? Uh, in in the the way oh, and superhero films I've argued for quite a while are sort of military propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're very pro military in their view. In fact, uh, uh, Captain Marvel appears in military recruitment ads. You yeah. can find them. Yeah. Uh, and you look at Batman. They're basically t- you know, telling you the best thing you yeah. can be is some kind of soldier. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and Batman is incredibly pro-cop, especially in those Nolan films. Yeah. That's one of the things that bugged me about the uh, Marvel Spider-Man movies mm. is that all he really wanted to do was, like, join the man. I'm yeah. like, that's kind of not what Spider-Man was about. Spider-Man was about doing being, like, a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Mm. Like, kind of community activism and shit. Like, mm-hmm. he was a much smaller scale than every once in a while I joined the Avengers, and that was neat. But, like, well, he, having that be his whole thing is yeah. kind of missing in, in the comics, you know, by the time we're, you know, 40 years down the line, it's well, like, oh, he's been to space and possessed yeah. by the aliens and made deals with the devil. It's, it's like... like by, okay. by Die Hard no, 5, John McClane isn't an everyman anymore. Yeah. He's done so, this too many times. So this, like, this like uh, ordinary ground level superhero thing doesn't fly with Spider-Man anymore. But, but it does fly if you're introducing Spider-Man for the first time and he's in high school and he hasn't been doing it very long. Yeah. So jumping right into that just feels like skipping an important bit. Mm. But whatever. That's We're, we're way off topic. Uh, next time on episode zero, we've talked about a lot of serious things. We've talked about uh, war... And uh, the interconnectivity of all things and fascism and all kinds of really, really heavy stuff. It'd be nice to just do a comedy. So we're going to do a comedy. (laughs) Uh, And we're going to talk about the influence of Buster Keaton and specifically the influence of his movie The Navigator on Star Wars. Uh, The Navigator is uh, sort of a naval film. I've actually never seen it. Yeah, this will be a, a new one for me. I'm, I'm super I'm a big excited fan for this. Of, of Buster Keaton, but I haven't seen this one. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is this will be a little bit of an exploration for us. I've seen quite a few Buster Keaton movies. I, he's one of my favorite uh, silent filmmakers, which makes him one of my favorite filmmakers. But yeah, this will be a new experience for me. I'm super stoked about it. And uh, yeah, I've I've I'm aware of its influence on Star Wars, but now I get to finally discover it firsthand. Uh, and perhaps you will too. The film is mm-hmm. available uh, online from various locales. Um, and of course you can get the DVD as well if that's your bag Um, and yeah we'll be back next week on episode zero to talk about The Navigator yay (sighs) okay so here's the spiel where we talk about all the stuff that we have so we got a Twitter at Critic Acclaim you can follow us there Mm. you can follow Whitney Seibold at Whitney Seibold that's me you can follow me at William Bibiani I'm taking a bit of a break from social media but I'll be back eventually Mm. um we also have a ton of other shows here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. We review new movies on Critically Acclaimed. We answer your emails at We've Got Mail. You can write us in about this show or anything else you really want to know about. 
or any other questions you might want us to answer, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on the air on We've Got Mail and answer your questions or respond to your criticisms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we've got Cancel Too Soon, where we review uh, TV shows that lasted only one season or less. And over at our Patreon, patreon.com slash network. We have a ton of exclusive content. We have podcasts dedicated to Firefly. We have podcasts dedicated to every film ever nominated for Best Picture. And in a couple episodes of that, we're actually getting to Casablanca again. <laughs> um, pretty, pretty soon. So. Yeah, a couple, couple of months, I think we'll get there. Um, and uh, da, 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 we have uh, well, all our yesterdays. We review every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Uh, we have uh, not on Disney Plus, where we have a talk about all of the things that should be on Disney Plus, but mysteriously aren't. And a ton of other exclusive content besides. Uh, so patreon.com slash network. Uh, if you're already a Patreon, we give you our extra special thanks because without you, we couldn't do this. We couldn't dedicate the time. Mm-hmm. So thank you, everybody, from the bottom of our heart. Please stay safe. Stay sane. Um, be like Rick. You know, try to make the world a better place. Do what you got to do. Uh, we're all counting on each other. So uh, let's make it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, May the force be with you and stuff.